Welcome to Life on Platerscape. I am Mario Veen. If you are anything like me, you've been watching a lot of films and series lately. Today we're going to look at life from Plato's cave through the lens of film. If you have been listening to Plato's story in the first episode, perhaps you already made some connections between film and the cave. The first is that if you look at the situation of the prisoners in the cave, it's like they sit in a kind of cinema. I mean they are in their seats watching a screen and the fire behind them and the objects carried in front of it kind of act like a film projector. Except of course that they don't realize that they are watching a movie. Plato says that they are just like us. So how is our life like a film? When one of the prisoners stands up and turns around, he is blinded by the fire. Have you ever stood up in the cinema and turned around and you're blinded by the projector light? And what happens when you walk out of that cinema? Do you just walk out into the daylight like Jim Carrey in the movie The Truman Show? Or do you end up in another dimension like Inception? And that is the second connection. There are so many films that are using this theme. Besides The Truman Show and Inception there's The Matrix, Waking Life, The Maze Runner, the recent Marvel series WandaVision, Blade Runner, Total Recall, the original with Arnold Schwarzenegger and the shitty remake, Naked Lunch, the Divergent series, Interstellar, Ready Player One, Jupiter Ascending. Well, I could go on, but you get the point, right? I bet you can think of some more as well. So why is it that we are so occupied with illusion and reality in the collective consciousness? And the third connection is that we can learn from films. I don't just mean educational documentaries or biopics, but films can make you reflect on your own life, show situations that you're in from another perspective and give you new ideas. Film can even ask questions. Film is kind of like a magical thing that allows us to experience visions and emotions from our comfortable seat in Plato's cave. Well, I cannot think of anyone better to speak about this topic than our guide today, Masha Bronikova. Masha and I have been friends for a long time, and she is the one that opened my eyes to look at film in a different way. Masha is a poet, a performer, a cultural producer and a connector. She initiates and joins interdisciplinary projects around the Netherlands, and currently she works with platforms such as OT301 Studios, DNK, Stingerbol and the Bookstore Foundation. Masha was born in Siberia. She grew up in the Netherlands and she lived in various other places in Europe, North America and South America. So that's four continents so far. Masha, if I describe your life like this, it kind of sounds like a film. Do you ever look at your life like this? <laughs> I would say taking a distance definitely makes me feel that it's a film but only when looking back um when you're right in the midst of it are you a director or uh, uh are you watching the film <laughs> um yeah so i i'd say life looks like film when you're looking back at it i've only had a few moments uh that were very intense kind of traumatic and then I thought, oh, right now I feel like I'm in a horror film or a thriller. Um, 
or you know when I was traveling I would encounter moments and I would definitely feel you know I'm, I'm creating a comedy but I can't imagine a person walking around all the time thinking <laughs> they are in a film just you know this realization I would say at least in my case comes when I look back on things yeah. and looking back things fall into place and certain events and this happened and that happened and in that process it pans out as a film or as something we you know consider what, what is film yeah oh yeah I'm looking at it from a certain perspective from a certain distance yeah this uh, this situation that we're in right now in the pandemic I mean so many films have been made about viruses and yeah i i wonder how it will be if we look back at this in 10 years sometimes for sure it feels like science fiction because we're doing everything on zoom and i mean right now we're not even in the same place and we're speaking to each other it's kind of incredible i think when you said you you see it as a film when you look back it kind of reminded me of what sartre wrote in nausea that uh, you have to choose to live your life or to recount it. By the way, if you recognize Masha's voice, that could very well be because she read Plato's allegory in the first episode. How how was that reading that story? Um, yeah, it's been a while. So I was actually grateful that you asked me to do that. It's been a while that I, uh, since I've read uh, Plato. You read some stories as well on your SoundCloud. I really liked it, especially because. I think you read those books for the first time because sometimes you're you're laughing or you're surprised, right? Well, yeah, that's something I started doing during in the beginning of the first lockdown and to keep myself busy, um, I just started recording whatever I was reading at that moment. It's really great to listen to it. I mean, it's nice to be uh, read to, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's relaxing. But so, yeah, the, the, the virus, the, the lockdown thing, what you were just mentioning, um, for example, today I watched a part of a documentary about um, a festival. So from 2010, I believe. And I'm watching. <laughs> so now it's the other way, you know, hmm. that thing in the past of people dancing together. We're talking about thousands of people. That looks like science fiction. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know? yeah. And at the same time, I'm kind of reminiscing and I'm watching it because, you know, I miss it. But don't you think it's so strange how, because if I if I see a festival or something like that, I cringe because I think, wow, those people are so close to each other. But <laughs> it hasn't, well, it has just been over a year now. And I hear this from a lot of people. And it's, for me, it's so crazy that, something that has affected the world so much at least i mean we don't know how it will affect the world in the long term but it has affected the world so much but it happened in just one year i mean if it was a film maybe it would be unbelievable so well yeah and and, and what you were saying earlier is is now we have actually more time to watch films and series but we can't do that you know together in the cinemas how we used to do mm. it so on one hand we have much more time 
and leisurely time, I would say, or, but we can't, it's not an action. We don't go out with, to, we don't take that, um, <laughs> we don't make the step mm-hmm. to, to go see something, meet someone, discuss it afterwards. So it's a completely different process. Do you think it's what is the difference between because now okay so the cinemas most of the cinemas are closed and uh, peop, uh, the producers are starting to release the films on the streaming services right mm-hmm. well they're investing in it now and it might be bad news for cinemas do you think so do you think when when we go back to normal whatever that is. Do you think people will return to the cinemas? Is that is that a different experience from just watching? I mean, you can watch in your own home. You don't have to leave the house. It's quite tempting, right? Well, the same question was posed when television came in, you know, and I, a lot of people said, that's it. Television is going to take over. Yeah. <laughs> the cinemas are gone forever. Um, it's definitely an art on its own. And it's part of a culture cultural um lifestyle yeah it's a way of spending time together it's a way of getting to know each other having an experience together Mm, but at the same time you know i'm more worried on a longer term well worried (laughs) i'm more aware of the fact that you know where technology is taking us that the the format of the film what is a film uh, might change very soon Hmm. you know and it's becoming more interactive and we're talking about virtual reality and things like that so that yeah there is a definite transition but right now it's hard to say because we're busy with so many (laughs) practical Hmm. questions you know yeah so we've been friends for a long time now i was thinking today i think it's 18 years so i think our relationship is allowed to drink now at least in the netherlands um (laughs) But so what I remember is that uh, you introduced me to one of your favorite films. I think it was Stalker by Andrei Tarkovsky. I'm not 100% sure. But that already tells me a lot because I re- I remember I enjoyed, I enjoyed the film and it was like unlike anything I've ever seen. But what I remember most is how you did that. It was like almost a sacred ritual. So you put the chairs, everything, you put, made everything ready. So wouldn't have to get up to get drinks or something like that. And I started to, I was not allowed to speak. <laughs> and uh, it was just like the feeling of you really set the stage for something. It was like a special uh, event. I think that's what I learned from you is just even watching a film with intense focus. It doesn't really even matter maybe which films you watch, but with this focus and this kind of attention. So I wonder where did that come from? Where What role did film play in your childhood? Well, yeah, so what you just described, I believe it happened when I was around 20, maybe even younger. And, uh, you know, this is quite a serious film. <laughs> When I look back to it now, I I wonder, oh, my gosh. I mean, that kind of relationship to to it, I definitely developed with my my family, with my parents. And they were the kind of people that started showing Tarkovsky to me at the age of eight. 
<laughs> you know, and I honestly have not, you know, um, I've never really met other people who've had that. So it, in, in our house, it was a ritual, you know, and I would say maybe every week since the age of eight, nine. So imagine a child watching these very serious, pretty slow films um, on a weekly basis. You know, and that definitely does something to you. <laughs> yeah. So, so for people who don't know Andrei Tarkovsky, so he's a Russian director. His films are well. In back in the day, we called them long, I think, but right now it's just average size film. But they are about well. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. They, you... they 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 are quite spiritual, and so now again, looking back as a grown up. I realize everything has to, you know, it has a context. So for my parents, when they were young in Soviet Union, this was a kind of rebellion mm. to watch these films, to appreciate these films, to take them seriously, because um, being spiritual was not part of the culture. And you know, only much later did I realize they were sharing with me their rebellion. Uh, but I did not grow up in that Soviet culture. So again, you know, I, I am very much grateful that they shared it with me. But my own interpretation and how I lived those films, because they were definitely part of my life, um, was something completely different, mm. you know, because... Uh, first of all, I was a child. Second of all, I was in a completely other culture. So it's, it's just funny that when I realized that what they were sharing with me was already something different, something completely a different, um, had a different impact on me than what it, had, what it was for them. Yeah. So film is, is like a double-edged sword in that way, right? Because... I think a lot of the maybe let's say criticism of films nowadays is exactly the reverse. It's like the Plato's cave thing. We uh, we live a life and we expect happy endings, uh, dramatic turns. And if you just think about it, how much of your knowledge about society is really just knowledge from films? I mean, most people nowadays, they know how what the surgery is like. Uh, they know what what war is like. <laughs> they know what it is like to, to travel around the world or to go into space. But mm -hmm. yeah, how much does that shape it? So, so what I wanted to say is that a lot of the criticism is that we're kind of, yeah, we're in Plato's cave because we... We uh, are fed this Hollywood We're story. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But how you describe it is the other way around, right? It's, it reminds me of, well, the last episode with Mika Ball about image thinking and how mm -hmm. images can introduce something new in the reality that you're used to. Yeah. Well, you know, don't forget also the beginning of this art, of this medium. What are we talking about? beginning 20th century and 19th. And I just 
uh, I don't know, a few months ago, I watched a documentary about Alice Guy Blachet. Have you ever heard of her? No. So in this documentary, they do a research into how apparently she was the first female filmmaker. And first she was an assistant, I think maybe it was uh, with the Lumieres. And then she started making her own short films. What amazed me was that she, um, she was not only, well, kind of forgotten, <laughs> but she was, because, you, you know, most people know those first images, you know, the train, workers coming out of the factory yeah and she actually started to film some kind of um fairy tale you know or something a story and this is very for me that was like a pivotal point to kind of go back and realize that when they were just starting to 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 work experiment with this um, equipment they were really just they had no idea what could it be like yeah. what where could it take them you just you <laughs> just put your camera somewhere and you film something which you think which is practically which you're practically able to do and which you think oh people like to see that yeah just capturing life as it is and i I've seen this in this film, but also in others that um, a lot of, because look, this is a time of inventions back then. Mm -hmm. uh, they were, there was a lot of competition. So this was just another invention. And actually a lot of people thought that it wouldn't last. Like many of those inventions, you know, some of them did stay. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I think if it was just something to record you know, a street in Paris, maybe it wouldn't have lasted. But because they did something else with it, yeah, they started, mm -hmm. they gave it that next, they took it to the next level of that, that it's actually telling us something. I think, I do believe that that's why it stayed and mm -hmm. uh, got us where it got us. On the other hand, you know, if they took it into some other direction, we don't know. Maybe right now we'd have a completely other um, visual cultural experience. Yeah. Yeah, Mika Bau, in, in some of her books, she describes this uh, idea she calls uh, preposterous, like something, it's kind of a reversal of time. So I think if I remember correctly, she speaks about uh, the Flaubert and maybe even Proust writing style. And she says, well, uh, photography had to be invented because of this writing style. So mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a reversal of how we normally think about, okay, first there's a technology and in this technology we, we used to explore and make things, but it's like something had to be invented for that. And again, I, re I think back of the way Plato describes the cave is it's just a cinema and of course in in his days you didn't even have you know electric light or newspapers or or something mm -hmm. like that so and and the image so you you started out saying the first uh images were like a train 
and we i think most people have seen this uh people sitting in a cinema and a train comes towards the camera and people run away because they think it's a real train and we kind of laugh about that but so then they they think they had to learn the suspension of disbelief i think it's called right Mm-hmm. So you're watching something and you don't think there's a literal train coming towards you. But if you would think, well, it's just a it's just a film, it would be just boring. So it's somewhere in between, right? Could you could you speak a little bit about that? The suspension? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um well so somewhere in us there is an understanding we we've discussed this with you before uh there is it's somewhere in our cultural dna um the capes right so and then you know and now i'm referring to the amazing documentary by herzog uh cave of forgotten dreams yeah yeah which by the way dreams and i, I think lumiere one of lumiere's dreamt how to make the camera so it's all kind of <laughs> interweaving, right? Yeah. Um, so again, it, creating that image, those images and watching them go hand in hand, right? And I think he shows that very well in that film. I mean, it's amazing that they could enter those caves and then to see what people were um, representing portraying to we 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 can only guess how they experienced um what they drew on their walls and how the fire reflected on it and how to them it was their immediate reality but at the same time we we don't know what those drawings meant to them so just a bit of background about that documentary by uh, Werner Herzog it's it's a he's a well-known documentary maker and this documentary is about I think it was kind of newly discovered cave paintings in France yeah in France around uh, 35,000 years ago yeah and but there yeah uh so it's in a cave so that's a bit different because they're in a cave and there's presumably a fire in the cave at night and they're watching images on the cave walls but yeah so they know it's it, they know their yeah. images but there's also something about the shadow play and he really goes deeply into it well yeah because you asked me about the suspense of you know understanding the image or giving meaning to it yeah and i would say that started already back then that relationship mm-hmm. you know and sharing that relationship because creating um those images and experiencing them together they do go together the other thing is the if we say it's um somehow ritualistic or like a nourishment then after the nourishment you need time for digestion right Mm -hmm. i mean (laughs) so those images that they were creating and then experiencing in the cave were part of their lifestyle as it was mm, the temporality of their lifestyles if we take our <laughs> to now or pre the virus 
uh, what is how has that uh, ritual uh, morphed and what is the digestion you know time lapse and i would say that time is very limited so if if it being part of our cultural lifestyles how much can we um how deep can we go into something knowing that afterwards i'm going to do that i'm going yeah. to do you know and we're just busy with all these other things so you know this the 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 meaning giving or the 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 traveling through these experiences got narrower and narrower mm-hmm. within a very structured lifestyle i'm thinking back about uh 10 years ago or something i was uh, i was single actually i just been ill so i didn't have a lot of energy i couldn't work but i had this uh movie uh cinema subscription that i you know unlimited and just right around where i lived there were three cinemas so i would see one or two films every day and it was so amazing and i loved it so much and I'm thinking now, you know, one of most movies now are at least two hours and it's two hours in your day. If you go to the cinema where you just sit and you look at the screen, but you can kind of also let your thoughts wander. It doesn't, you know, most movies are not so hard to follow that you really have to pay attention all the time. So yeah, in a way it's kind of like dreaming, right? Where yeah dreaming is also i think people say it's also a way of processing the events in your day mm-hmm. at least that's that's how it is for me that i connect when i watch a film if i watch it one time and i watch it a year later it's a completely different film but that has to do with what's going on with me in the in the moment in that day kind of a way of uh, learning about the events in my day and sometimes mm-hmm. Yeah, there are some answers. Sometimes the film asks other questions. Yeah, exactly. So it's also very much dependent on, you know, the the different processes in our lives, different cycles, and what which questions do we prioritize? What speaks to us at which time? Yeah. So. So it's just one one concrete example, and I think maybe not many people have seen this film or this scene uh but uh i will yeah it's kind of difficult how to share films right because uh you know if i i'm scared if we put the clips in here we'll get some copyright stuff so i'll i'll put some links in the description so this is a scene from uh, nostalgia which is a tarkovsky film mm-hmm. and i think towards the end um the candle scene so this man has a candle he lights a candle and he walks across an empty swimming pool it's a swimming pool right in italy yeah in italy and he he walks across and every time the candle uh extinguishes because of the wind he has to walk back and light it again until he can walk to the other side of the pool and i think the scene is what 15 minutes or something like that yeah, it's actually been years since I've seen that film. He's performing, you know, his own ritual. And we are granted 
this kind of privilege to be there with him, to go through that with him and to experience the, the temporality of that ritual with him. So that's very generous of the director. <laughs> but then you speak about time. I'm just thinking if you would write a book, you would say he, he walked across the, uh, you know, the pool and it uh, took a few times. Or if you would see it in a Hollywood film, it would, for sure, it would be cut because there are some rules about Hollywood films that every scene has to move the story forward. And, you know, there's a question if there's even a story there, but you're, you're unless you walk out of the cinema, uh, you're kind of forced to spend time with someone where almost nothing happens. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what I'm thinking about. What does it do to someone to you to to sit there and just watch something happening that I don't know if it's interesting or not, but <laughs> you're being you're being kept there. And so if I watch when I watch it, I, I would go through, really, when is he uh, going to stop? Or, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I would get bored sometimes. Then I would see something interesting. So it was like a roller coaster watching this scene. Yeah. Wasn't Tarkovsky, yeah. for a long time, wasn't he the one that had the longest shot in film history? The one shot taken. Yeah, I, I believe so. Maybe in Sacrifice. Yeah in the last film. Well, I'm not sure what your question is. I, I guess you're talking about why is that necessary or how does that actually change the direction of cinema? But, yeah, my, my question is about, it's kind of maybe what I'm doing now is keep focusing on one thing and not much happens, but you take time to do it. Mm -hmm. What does that do to the audience or to... To the experience of watching a film again we don't know who comes with what yeah. you know <laughs> like you know i started this conversation and talking about context i have to think of this parable and it's a sufi tale maybe you've heard of it uh where the city of blind men uh hear that there's an elephant in a caravan and they all want to experience the elephant but they're all blind so they all go there and they touch different parts of the elephant they come back to the city and everyone has a different story of what the elephant is like <laughs> yeah so you're watching the same film but uh, it's a question of whether it's the same film yeah yeah so again the focusing part is great everyone will find something different in that focusing mm -hmm. Uh, process you know the, the 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 distinction is from a film that is mm, purely directed at uh, entertaining or yeah tantalizing what's the word tantalizing <laughs> <laughs> your senses right or or some kind of a shock uh, therapy yeah you know and then constant shocking but again even that is different parts of the elephant right i mean who are we to say that a thriller is so much worse than a philosophical poetic film? Is it worse? Is it what's going mm -hmm. on here? Right? 
Mm. Well, yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, if you contrast, maybe there's no bigger contrast if you think about the candle scene, and then you think about Quentin Tarantino, which I I love. He's one of my favorite directors. Mm -hmm. I think for for you as uh, you like him too, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. But his his films are very violent, in a way. Um, I, but I I once heard him speak about how he conducts uh, films or directs well actually i say conduct because he speaks about it he says well uh he realized that the audience is his orchestra and he's the director mm -hmm. so he directs like okay this is where i want a surprise here i want a laugh here i want them to you know not they want to look away from the screen because it's so violent but they have to keep watching so there it's all he wants he controls the emotions of the the audience yeah like a dj <laughs> like a dj exactly and and you you build towards something and especially in the uh once upon a time in hollywood it's actually a commentary on hollywood right and he builds towards something and every time you think okay there's going to be a showdown but there's no showdown <laughs> until the very end uh, it's such a different approach to, they're both brilliant directors, but it's such a different approach to uh, uh, cinema. Yeah, for sure. And like, again, it's it's just a matter of preference and taste. Um, sometimes certain fugues fall out for a while. And I say fugues because like classical music, right? Mm -hmm. It has its moments. It's always there. It's classical, classic. What does classical. that mean? Right? The classics. Yeah. But it also kind of, it has its own waves of presence, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and sometimes something blows new life into it. Mm, but I'm not sure. I don't know if it will actually keep on being that for, you know, a very long time. Mm -hmm. So it's it, it, these waves, these frequencies of something, uh, 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 a wave, mm, be it music or film, uh, a certain perception, you know, they linger for quite a, a while. Mm, they, the, the new generations um, can twist them around and, and, and learn from them and, or, or completely disregard them. Mm. So it's, it's, it's hard to say which one will make like the biggest impact at some point. And it can be very, you know, something very unexpected. And it's amazing that now we have so much to choose from. We have the entire history of film. Well, that's not entirely true. Uh, some films are more accessible than others, uh, of course. And uh, but still, if you if you want to, you can. You can watch films from from the 40s uh, or films that have just been released or some anywhere in between yeah it's it's a it's a bit of an avalanche and and this is a problem in so many disciplines right yeah. because we're kind of overwhelmed and the filters i would say are not very strong at this moment for mm -hmm. people <laughs> <laughs> yeah because the overwhelming is not only in the cultural but it's also on other levels of um kind of social cohesion 
that is quite chaotic and distorted. Yeah. So where to look? And um, it's interesting if people make more conscious choices, you know, and I'm thinking now because also, again, as a child, I also watched other kinds of films which were pure Soviet propaganda, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I knew that it was that already as a child. I knew it because it was so obvious. But still, I liked it, you know, they were fun and people were happy in those films and everybody was kind of happily working, you know, for the system. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, of course, and as a child, even though knowing that I still like to watch them because they were fun. Yeah, and I think we have the same thing going on now. Well, not the same thing, but something similar with uh, it's like you're watching a film, but you're being sold something someone and, and, and yeah and it's it, it's something to hold on to especially when everything else is such a mess and yeah. chaos and life is not um that simple it's really easy to hold on to very kind of easily packaged um messages mm -hmm. and many of the same message because i yeah i wanted to ask you about the relationship between film and story first of all do you think Every film has to have a story. How can a film not be a story? Like, what is your, um, because I, I always compare it to some, you know, piece of music. Yeah. You know, and we, even in like those, that piece of John Cage that is silent. Yeah. You know, it has its limits and we fill it in ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> I mean, there is movement in there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There is some kind of our own interpretation, whatever it is. So even if you show me, I don't know, just the tree for five minutes and it's a short film, I will make it into a story. But the thing is, like I, I told you that one of my latest favorite films is The Violent Heart. Mm -hmm. And it's a very tragic film, also very beautifully filmed. Like at this point in my life, I would say, yeah, I prefer a film with this kind of twist and a story that kind of gets under your skin and you think about it for like at least a day. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> like right now for me personally, I prefer something like that. Yeah. And something that kind of grabs your... Mm, social imagination i don't know your ideas about society your ideas about human relationships and you know maybe a few years later oh this will change for me and i'll have another preference hmm. yeah one of those films for me is uh, uh waking life by richard linklater yeah it's one of those films that uh it's a bit like uh i don't know some kind of uh, food or something you feel like oh i just have to have uh pizza today or i have to have this today <laughs> but there i mean pizza i eat every week <laughs> but um there's some other ones like indian food or something i just i have it like maybe every few months and like oh i have to see that so so we spoke about stalker earlier and there are Actually, I was wondering, should I rewatch it uh, in preparation for this conversation? But I had it even ready, but I was just, 
I couldn't do it. And uh, that's one of those films. Maybe I watch Stoker every five years or something. No. But it's like I have to prepare for it. And after I've watched it, I can't watch other films for a while. And yeah, it kind of keeps seeping through. And uh, Waking Life is is like that. And also it's like, it's very explicitly Plato's cave, right? It's like, you don't really know, are they dreaming or not? Uh, mm-hmm. Is he dreaming or not? And mm-hmm. uh, is there a story in that film? They're just having conversations. And yeah, uh, yeah. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah. And I was... mean, it's interesting because, sorry, did I interrupt you? What did you want to say? No, go ahead. No, it's just because both are kind of our, they're essentially science fiction. And they don't, they take place somewhere in our imagination. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily here or there. You know, sometimes it's easier, of course, to say it's the future or something like this. Yeah. Or it's a dream. But in fact, the more you go into it, you just, you don't need to give it a place. And that's a very um, kind of important opposite of the rest of the stuff we get to see. Yeah. <laughs> that is very determined and um, explains things to us. Yeah. And in, in Waking Life, they, also speak about film in the film which is you know one thing that you see in film a lot that uh, it's self-referential right and uh there's one part where they speak about uh bazin i don't do you i don't know this person but apparently wrote about film and about the holy moment and that uh actually every moment is holy and film can show us that and i think that's one of the scenes in that film that made such an impression uh, on me mm-hmm. that actually showed me something about it's kind of proposing an experiment you know like can you yep. experience every moment as uh, holy well it's also reaching out and, and and becoming interactive with the audience so it's it's kind of you know eliminating the the fourth wall <laughs> you know while watching a film you can have this moment because you're watching something that is reality itself or God itself, as he puts it. Yeah. Yeah. So in that, so the film itself is like, like I don't know, slapping the <laughs> viewer on the cheek. Yeah. <laughs> Wake up. Have have that moment with me now. Wake up. <laughs> yeah. 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 And he, he, uh, he doesn't explicitly, um, uh, related to literature but that's what i thought about of course you know people often say that uh, if you read a book and you know you read i don't know harry potter or lord of the rings or you know uh, another book and then you see the film then uh, often it's kind of a downer because uh, in your when you read the book you imagine a lot but when you make a film, you have to hire an actor and this actor, you know, his nose is a certain way and his eyes are a certain way. So you have to give it a very, very explicit fil- um, uh, form. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, uh, what Stalker is doing, but also Waking Life and uh, some of uh, a recent one, WandaVision is actually, it's from Marvel. It's like a superhero series but it's also doing that it's playing with 
the environment is changing and the form is constantly changing. Mm. Yeah. I don't know if you remember, uh, this was <laughs> must have been like 17 or 18 years ago. Uh, we were walking in a park in Utrecht and we both had this, as I remember it, uh, this experiment, this experience that we were walking in a film, not as a metaphor, but we just had this physical experience of uh, walking in a film. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, I remember those geese or ducks or what were they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we also had it because we were both kind of engulfed in thinking about these things. You know, we were young and very much interested in the sense per perceiving reality. So having someone, you know, having people around you that are interested in something similar is amazing because then you can actually explore it further and seeing films with people like that is even better. <laughs> but yeah. I think also the crucial part is to talk about it afterwards, you know, about the film. And, and that is happening less and less. And I'm not talking online. I'm not talking about reviews. I'm talking about people having seen something together and then, just casually talk about you know yeah. what just happened but that's the point right where um now we live in a kind of a review culture so the the films are already made uh with you reviewing that film in mind so mm -hmm. if there's that's why we have so many happy endings because uh because films with happy endings have people give higher ratings in the focus groups afterwards than uh, films that don't have that and uh, I <laughs> one of one of my friends is at one point I I still kept seeing films with him but um, not all films because uh, you know you know uh, those people when you watch a film and they know it's about to end and that's already when they stand up or that's that's one thing but what <laughs> he would do is he would instantly start to comment on the film judge it and rate it Mm. And one of the things I love is in the cinema, just sitting through the credits yeah, and just like letting the film be without judging it. Wash over you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm. And that's, well, that's not just about film, but I wonder what it's doing that we're in art in general, you know, all the, uh, the voice and... Uh, all these talent shows where you have someone doing something incredible on stage and the very next thing that happens is a jury judging them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, as an art, but this already started also, you know, with painting, with music, live music, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of entering a certain mental state that you're open and receiving, but at the same time, you're not, um, you're not switching off. So what we were talking about earlier, you're focused, mm -hmm. but you're relaxed. It's a time to relax. It's a time to receive. <laughs> um, it's a very mm, special, it's a very particular mental state. Uh, 
and I would say film as a new art back then kind of took it to another level because it's determined, right? How long you are in that state yeah. with a painting or I don't know, you could just get up and leave at the museum, but here. Okay. So you, you want to see the ending. So they anchor you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why do you want to see the ending? But still, um, you, you know, you're in that zone for a while. And, and then again, yeah, I think pretty early on, they realized what happens to a mind in that state. Yeah. Oh, we can put any message in there, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. because this is a very interesting kind of receptive state that most of the time, maybe we try to avoid because it's also uh, uh, vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, the so it's not, again, not just about film, but the one side is that rating it afterwards in the meantime you're kind of being either sold something or you're at least you're open to something but it already starts before because you're going to a film and you expect something so one of the things is that the film can be sometimes disappointing but it's only disappointing if you expected something right and if I want to watch a film, I don't want to know anything more about it. And sometimes I remember, I think it was that film you just mentioned. I haven't watched it yet, but you said, okay, don't read anything about it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. The violent heart. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we cannot speak about it because then you would, you know, reveal some spoilers. <laughs> we can only watch, <laughs> we can only speak about films like, you know, Star Wars and, uh, 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 you know, the fact that Darth Vader is his uh, father or something like that, which if you're Dutch, you already know because father is uh, a father. You go you go into the, the uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Tarantino's film is another one that, again, it's an example of him playing with the audience because I what I love so much about this film, every time watching it, it gets more intense, is that you realize how much he's playing a joke on you. Brad Pitt is going to this uh, ranch or this old movie plot. And it's like a Western. Everything screams Western. There's going to be a showdown. And every time you expect something and it doesn't happen, but that's intentional and he's playing with it. But then (laughs) some of the people I watched it with, they were disappointed in it because of that, because they said, well, nothing happens in that film. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But how how does nothing happen? By that, what you just described, uh, by knowing the buttons, because mm-hmm. the, those buttons have been pushed over and over again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course, these people, I mean, we're talking about multi-million projects. Mm, they definitely know their um, group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Their, their target audience. Target. Yeah. Yeah. Even the word target audience. Yeah. Why are people being targeted? Yeah. But don't forget, you know, there's also all this indie DIY uh, production happening always. Mm -hmm. And again, it's like, yeah, I would say a lot of it is based on cultural identity. And again, I'd say, you know, of course. There's so many stories that need to be told. Mm, it's very important to open up 
that Pandora's box, you know? Yeah, which I think uh, is happening even in, you know, if just take uh, Frozen by Disney, one of those Hollywood rules is that in the first five minutes, the main character has to fall, uh, fi- meet the person they will end up marrying, <laughs> right? <laughs> and there uh, it happens, you know, uh, usually it's like, you even have like those, all those tropes like meet, meet cute and there are four types of ways in which they can meet and it's all been reduced to just a couple of versions. And then in Frozen, they meet, again, spoiler alert, the first man is he turns out to be bad and it turns out to be not about you know the princess meeting a man but sisters together and everything yeah and don't forget the songs that then children keep on singing let it go my daughter is singing let it go let it go and i think yeah, well, yeah. what a great lesson mine mine also yeah yeah, in yeah. One, but in spanish yeah mine in dutch <laughs> <laughs> So that's that's something else shared, and it's like, and then Soul is another uh, uh, recent Disney movie, and someone told me this because I don't, I'm not American, I don't have experience, but they say, well, one one of the comments this film got is that it obviously it's about Soul, but in kind of the uh, the wide way of seeing it, you have a Soul, so uh, I Mario have a Soul, and you Masha have a Soul. But mm. in, in what she called the black experience, it's not like a soul, but soul. And something can have soul, or music can have soul, or you yeah. can have soul. Yeah, I remember that film. It's also connected to music, yeah. Yeah. And then one of the, the themes that uh, I've personally been fascinated with is uh, with uh, robots and technology and also <laughs> simulation. So just some of the films are like, uh, well, obviously The Matrix. Uh, Blade Runner, um, uh, Interstellar, uh, iRobot. But so we were speaking about stories, right? And then there's just like, just like there are four different kinds of meat cutes, or I think it's even three. I think there's like two or three stories about technology. Mm. One is Pinocchio. So there's uh, a robot and becomes a boy. So in iRobot, there's there's a robot and but the robot becomes human in uh, quotation marks. Oh yeah, I remember that one it was Will Smith. Yeah, and the other one is uh, Frankenstein. So uh, man creates monster, monster kills man. <laughs> and then I don't know if it's a different one, but films like well. Uh, obviously also the matrix but also blade runner is who is the real robot mm-hmm. and uh, is is the uh, are some people more technological than uh... anyway so there are these films about technology and they're just like two or three stories that are being told over and over again in different forms or about love and well, it's interesting you compare it to Pinocchio because I'm I'm also thinking, well, when did these directions, when did they start happening? When did we start thinking in those terms? Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, Pinocchio was not, uh, <laughs> I don't think <laughs> they were thinking of cyborgs <laughs> when they wrote it. No. Um, well, maybe I think I can't remember what the earlier, there are early stories about uh making a clay i think even in in the 
Bible, I'm not sure. About, oh, Gollum or something. Yeah, Gollum, like yeah. making a clay figure which comes alive. And then mm -hmm. now we, now kind of the, that's the interesting thing. It's like the screen or the projection is now uh, robots and technology and computers. Mm -hmm. And now we would say, just even when we speak about technology, uh, when we speak about technology, you're probably not thinking about books or clothes. But we also mean, we usually mean the most recent version of technology that's very mm -hmm. visible in iRobot as well, because there, it, it seems to be about technology, but it's actually about good technology and bad technology. Good technology is uh, like his uh, vintage sneakers, which is like a pro mm -hmm. product placement. Or a pencil. Or a pencil, <laughs> or like his his uh, clock radio, which plays a Stevie Wonder song. Yeah. Or his motorbike, which is like dirty. And uh, the bad kind of technology is like shiny and perfect. So I, I do wonder, so, so since we're talking about the cave and if we're living in the cave, to what extent is, do we have of anything happening in our lives, like falling in love or something like that? Do we have two versions or three versions or four versions? And to mm. which extent is that uh, limited by the movies we see? Well, in any case, they're familiarizing us with that relationship and with the kind of thoughts, you know, we, we should be having about it, right? Mm -hmm. But of course, if, 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 if a pen or sneakers or whatever is also technology, I don't remember anyone ever teaching me how to relate to them. <laughs> so this is definitely on another level. Just the fact that that sneakers can be a thing that you want to wear. It's not just something you have to put on before you go out of the door, but you have to have these sneakers and not other ones. And then mm. they're part of your identity. I guess that's the thing. Huh? Is everything that an actor in a film wears is part of their, nothing is accidental. Yeah. yeah. If their nose is too small, they make it a little bit bigger. <laughs> Mario, you're scaring me. Or the other way around. But so what are you trying to tell me? That our relationships have been determined by this avalanche of images? There's a quote by, by uh, Susan Sontag, uh, but it's on photography. It could just as well be in a film. It's from 77. And she, so the quote, uh, I'll read the quote. Ultimately, having an experience becomes identical with taking a photograph of it. And participating in a public event becomes more and more to be equivalent to looking at it in photographed form. Mallarmé said that everything in the world exists in order to end in a book. Today, everything exists to end in a photograph. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when I read this, I just get the image of people uh, at the concert uh, watching the screen of their smartphone filming what is happening on stage. Yeah, yeah. Or even not, or not even just the act itself, but the experience of it is already an experience of representation. That's even creepier, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you're experiencing already the video while taking it. You're like you're seeing something. You're like, oh, this is the video I'm going to watch, or I'm going to, or I'm going to post. Post exactly. Share, share <laughs> yeah. my. Yeah. You have this saying, right? Show me the photos, or it didn't happen. Mm. Yeah. 
but so what so because there's all this emphasis within contemporary technology on producing these images mm-hmm. uh in mass are we kind of trapped in these representations is, is that how our mind is is that, is that the path our mind is collective mind is taking <laughs> can we ever you know or do we even want to get out of it mm-hmm. because you know it's like a it's a, a, a fabric of consciousness so yeah. it looks like our consciousness decided to take that path yeah <laughs> well can, i think so there's something i think adorno wrote about uh images like he he talks about um for instance paris the name paris you hear it and you think wow it's uh the city of love so i want to go there because it's romantic but you have never been there but uh you know already it's going to be romantic and then you come there and then you uh you see paris but it's you know the streets are dirty and and you miss the metro and uh, it's not romantic and the the hotel is crappy and it's not romantic at all but then you just it, instead of saying well i guess my image is uh, shattered of paris hmm. you you say well i'm i guess i'm too close like you're too close to the screen you can see the the movie anymore <laughs> and then you go back and uh, you tell your friends you know everything you do you go out to you find a romantic restaurant that's typically parisian and then you go back and you think about what am i going to tell my friends and my family because for sure uh you know because of the uh i forget the name the psychological mechanism that you cannot go you know go there and invest all this time and just come back and say well it was actually <laughs> really crappy you have to have a story to to tell your friends. So, so so you're stuck in a certain maze and that reminds me of dark city remember that film can you dark tell city. me again for just wait, for wait. for the listeners <laughs> <laughs> well i'm trying to rem- so there this man uh keeps on he wakes up but he doesn't remember who he is and he keeps running around the city i think it's always dark and he starts realizing that nobody really knows how to get out of it mm. and do you want me to spoil the thing no go <laughs> and, ahead and then, what, what was it that the aliens are constantly so they're the the, the the inhabitants are like these mice in a maze yeah and they're being played by aliens right were they aliens or some kind of evil entity yeah <laughs> well do you know about this um it's i think it's a few years old it's called the maze runner oh and yeah. it's a series of movies and it's like this movies i think it's for people in their you know 16 17 years old and and the hunger games and there, there's another one i can think of now but all these films are basically uh the same story so in the maze runner um they just find they're dropped into the maze which is it's kind of like very Heideggerian. You're just thrown into the world, and yeah, uh, you know you have to make friends and all the you know all the typical uh, uh, like stories, uh, teenage stories, high school stories. I would say friends and there's an enemy and there's a love interest, but then they're in a maze and they're they have an assignment, but it's unclear who gave the assignment, 
And there's uh, one person, the one, like in the Matrix, also the one. And you know from the start, he's already going to break out of the maze. So there's a maze, but the maze has certain limitations. So yeah. Yeah. what the one is doing is one uh, is, is becoming a very good maze runner. Uh, mm. getting the girl or the boy usually mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if by the way if it's a uh, uh, man he will get the girl and if it's a girl she will have to choose between uh, uh, you know a good a good boy and a bad boy <laughs> <laughs> and it's more about that so that's the story there and uh, it, I could be <laughs> talking about any of these uh, films oh absolutely this is a yeah. very solid formula yeah so it's been worn out it's and so they uh finally they break out of the maze uh and they come into i think in this case into a laboratory and then they're told the the truth about the maze and that it was actually kind of a simulation and uh to achieve something, uh, mm, like whatever. But yeah. then you go to the second movie. So the second part of the trilogy. And the second part of the trilogy, now this laboratory where they end up, that's their reality. But then it's exactly the same story because they find mm -hmm. out, just like in Inception or like in The Matrix, that there's another layer and there's another yeah. layer. Yeah. But so this is like the, the game, the gamer, yeah. gamers. Yeah um perception right of the of the games of the levels of the games but then the reality the veil the veils of reality that's a very old idea <laughs> mm -hmm. you know peeling off these veils yeah but it's it becomes a game right and it becomes so the matrix i i think the matrix the first film made a huge impact uh and i really loved it and then also i i also liked the other films but then it became more kind of an excuse to have cool special effects and play a game mm -hmm. so there are and <laughs> yeah i'm just thinking of the truman show as well and it, that's that's another thing eh? films start to speak to each other mm -hmm. <laughs> And Blade Runner. So I think, well, yeah. Yeah, but I, if we start looking back and what, what, what was the first film that used that kind of formula or that twist to the story, you know, or, you know, did it start in a short story or in some book? Mm -hmm. You know, what is the origin? I find that interesting. But I also find interesting too that the focusing can just be on an interesting dialogue, right? And that all that unveiling of realities can happen just in a dialogue in the film, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you don't need any of that stuff. The dialogue. So that's why I, I love watching also these Hollywood films, maybe because of that, because it shows me something about what people are maybe fantasizing about in a way that maybe before we wouldn't have access to. And in this case, it could be, I'm thinking now, eh? it could be, uh, so we, we spoke before about, we had this experience that we felt like we're in a film. I actually had this experience a lot in my life and I really love it. And film is just a metaphor. It's not a film, but it's like a film. Uh, but there's also something I found out it's called the protagonist syndrome or the main character syndrome. Mm. Uh, where you have the feeling you're in a film and your life revolves uh, around you. 
mm. well, I think a lot, you know, it's a societal syndrome, maybe. And it's also <laughs> that that we are catered to, right? It's like all the things we are sold is that uh, we are unique and different and we are the one. And with special powers. <laughs> with special powers, which I honestly believe is the case, but it's like um, you have like the, the real thing and uh, the, the actual experience. So that was my point. <laughs> I think I didn't finish it. That was my point about the Paris story is that you you go to Paris, but actually you haven't been to Paris because you're you're in the image you're not you're mm -hmm. not really looking what's really there because yeah. your images and maybe your yeah. films you've seen and how many i mean we can speak about uh porn and sex right how many relationships were screwed up because you know one of the two watched porn and this is the idea about what sex is supposed to be like mm. or how i i just saw this uh, it's called on Netflix all the uh, to all the boys I loved or something. The film speaks starts about uh, this girl uh, with her boyfriend starts speaking about how love is in films and and she's actually she starts to complain to him that they didn't have a meet cute <laughs> and uh, they she didn't like that because then they don't have a story and what story so I'm thinking about okay what kind of relationship is that where your relationship is a story mm -hmm. well also the the special powers thing you know like if if we are constantly bombarded with that idea I don't know if people you know can I actually can you become aware of your own real special powers <laughs> yeah exactly you know and and, and the, the the relationship stories yeah it's a worn out the the romantic rom-com is just so worn out i think they're really running out of ideas <laughs> it's mm -hmm. on the verge of kind of um it's it's a parody yeah they're all parodies they cannot be they don't take themselves seriously anymore yeah which is becoming a thing like uh, uh self-conscious like i remember you know transformers part three or four or five <laughs> where in the beginning it's like because by the way i love watching bad movies but yeah like, i get really it <laughs> but i really enjoy that but so the transformers i really love that but at one point so you think you can say uh what i don't like is a movie that is think it's thinks it's good and but actually it's not or it's, it takes itself yeah it takes itself seriously Mm. but there are, all, are also like the bone collector for instance i think it's a very bad movie uh but then transformers at one point there's actually someone uh in a scene that just appears in a in a plane that was on the other part of the world and like how did i end up here <laughs> <laughs> and uh another point the, uh, one of the actors says uh, uh screw story or something like that so that's kind of self-conscious film, right? But mm. yeah, it's a long way from maybe Tarkovsky and Stoker. Well, look, in any case, I think it's important to always remember that it's a collective enterprise. You know, making a film is a collective thing. So, I, you know, if, if, if there's like people involved, and then people involved 
receiving it and watching it, you know, it's something about bringing people together, like the whole process. <laughs> you know? So I was just look like at the basic line, like what, what is going on here? And then, you know, start all these levels, like who manages the, 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 the conceptual part, who manages the, the, the money part. Mm, I, I find all of this very interesting because it's not like it's just some dreams popping up out of nowhere, you know. <laughs> it's an industry and it's a very indus- in- interesting industry, you know. Is it industry of our you know, fears or the industry of our desires? But it is an industry, which, by the way, now has stopped because of the virus mm-hmm. or partially stopped which is also quite interesting. Maybe it's the first time ever, right? On such a global level that that production is not just rolling as always. And what does that mean? And what will happen because of this gap? For me right now, like the, the, the important part is the human relation part. Mm-hmm. Mm, that film can facilitate and reminds us of, but can also do the opposite. So if I understand you correctly, film can do, so it can take you into, for instance, it can, a rom-com can take you into something where you think, oh, this is familiar. I know this story, but then take it to another direction <laughs> or maybe introduce something new or make you feel something, right? But we were talking about this earlier, like, do we only stumble upon things? Do we consciously choose, you know, like junk food film? Mm, do we choose it for a certain reason? Like, I think when you say yourself that you're watching what you call bad films, but you're obviously doing some kind of research while watching them, then everybody has a different reason, right? Yeah. I would say, I I don't know, I don't want to generalize, but okay. There's a big chunk of it is about escapism, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. And I mean, then again, there are so many films who, that are about escaping. Escape, mm-hmm. escape from New York, um, uh, Alcatraz, um, The Maze Runner. Um, <laughs> so many films about, so or escaping, you know, like um, mm-hmm. uh, what's it called, Slumdog Millionaires, escaping a social role, escaping mm. something else. So, is that something? So, what was the the Soviet? What was so rad- radical about the Soviet films that you watched in that? Time. Well, they weren't radical. They were just um, very happy people mm. that didn't question their realities. Um, they didn't question how things were running. Yeah. At the same time, you know, people like my grandmothers, they call them the kind films because afterwards, after this collapse of Soviet Union, all the films were about mobsters and criminals and shooting. So from my grandparents, Soviet films are kind. <laughs> They're about kind people. Yeah. And everybody's kind and and, and nobody um, nobody's trying to to damage anything, you know, or are they portrayed hero heroism, heroes of the war, or you know, how people sacrifice themselves for their country. So yeah. <laughs> I remember you told me about this film 
of a man who uh, he goes out partying and then he comes back drunk and he takes I don't know an airplane or a train, but accidentally he mm. goes to a different city. But because all the cities look exactly the same, he just walks to what he thinks is his own apartment building because it looks the same in all cities, and he comes yeah. to yeah. Uh, another. Is that one of those films or? Well, yeah. So that's a very typical Soviet satire. So it's not criticizing, but it's satirical. Mm -hmm. And it's funny you bring it up because actually that actor, the protagonist, <clears throat> he just recently died, and uh, it's very sad because I believe he's one of the best actors Russia ever had. Um, yeah, and that film became a ritual for Russians to watch every New Year night with their families. They would put on the film. I think it's from somewhere in the 70s. But even now, people put it on during New Year. Hmm. <laughs> Why? Well, first of all, because what you just described happens on New Year's night. Yeah. And his friends put him drunk, put the wrong guy on the plane. He goes to his apartment that he thinks is his, but it's of this woman. And that's how they meet. So it's a very romantic story, but um, with a Soviet twist, of course. Yeah. Speaking of uh, planes, and I'm getting very associative here. So speaking of planes and... Uh, 2001, which is also uh, a film by Stanley Kubrick, mm -hmm. uh, which brings us to A Clockwork Orange, uh, a very violent film. And in the end, the, the protagonist is punished. He's reprogrammed with images. So uh, he, he lies there and he's in some, he's restrained and he's in some device. Uh, where his eyelids, eyelids are kept open and he's being shown like very violent images, right? Oh, yeah, it's a very striking shot that stays in people's minds forever. <laughs> yeah, because you see, you see, he cannot close his eyes and it's so, it's, it's horror. But did you watch this on the plane? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't watch it on the plane, but uh, 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 the connection is 2001. So I was thinking of 9 uh, 11. <laughs> 9-11 but some some of the images we see on the news are so violent but you cannot stop watching and that's you know personally when I think of violence in films I think Quentin Tarantino is not violent at all in that sense but there are some other films that don't show like blood and everything but they're violent in another way so very associative here here's what I was getting at I'm trying to get to Zizek <laughs> And that's another, I think, so when you showed me this, uh, Tarn, this uh, I, I'm going to say Tarantino, but Tarkovsky film, yeah, that was like one of the defining moments where I thought, whoa, life uh, uh, and film, how you can, a, a film is not an escape from life, but it's something that maybe can show you something about life if you are uh, willing or courageous enough to go into it. And the other moment was... Uh, also with you when we were walking in the park and thinking like, wow, what if life is like a film and how, how would that, yeah. First of all, would you notice anything? Because in the Truman show, if you're in the Truman show, you wouldn't even notice it. <laughs> but then the third moment is uh, when I read, uh, this was, I think, not even a year after 9-11, there was quite a tense time, right? <laughs> Now we're used to Trump and everything, but 
just think back about 9-11 and how people were speaking about it. Mm. It's an essay which actually it refers to both The Matrix, the film, and to Baudrillard. It's called Welcome to the Desert of the Real, which is what uh, Morpheus says when uh, in the beginning of The Matrix when uh, Neo and him meet. And the illusion is shattered and he says, well, this is actually the real and it's a desert. It's not, it's not a very nice place. So one of the prevailing discourse at the time was, it was a shock. Who, who could have seen this coming? Well, afterwards, of course, you know, a lot of people saw it coming. Uh, but that's another story, <laughs> maybe for another episode. But Shisek writes, just recall the series of movies from Escape from New York to Independence Day. Darren recites the rationale of the often-mentioned association of the attacks with the Hollywood disaster movies. The unthinkable which happened was the object of fantasy, so that, in a way, America got what it always fantasized about. And this was the greatest surprise. One should therefore turn around the standard reading according to which the World Trade Center explosions were the intrusion of the rule which shattered our illusory sphere. Quite the contrary. It is prior to the World Trade Center collapse that we lived in our reality, perceiving the third world horrors as something which is not effectively part of our social reality, mm. as something which exists for us as a spectral apparition on the TV screen. And what happened on September 11 is that this screen, phantasmic apparition, entered our reality. Mm. So it is not that reality entered our image, the image entered and shattered our reality. The fact that after September 11th, the opening of so many of the blockbuster movies with scenes which bear a resemblance to the World Trade Center collapse, like large buildings on fire or under attack or terrorist actions were postponed, is thus to be read as the repression of the phantasmatic background responsible for the impact of the World Trade Center collapse. Of course, the point is not to play a pseudo postmodern game of reducing the World Trade Center collapse to just another media spectacle. The question we should have asked ourselves when we stared at the TV screens on September 11th is simply, where did we already see the same thing over and over again? End quote. So that, that image made us question reality prior to it? Yeah, so he's not saying, he's saying we fantasized about this already. Yeah. If you look, I think there are people who have analyzed birds by Hitchcock mm. and the image of the World Trade Center attack with, uh, or, or the image of King Kong on a building or the image of Independence Day where, you know, people were selling movies by showing how uh, American uh, buildings got destroyed, but he's not. He's not saying that. He's not saying uh, America got what it deserved or something like that. He's saying what happened is what we always fantasized about. Yeah, but again, those fantasies were produced by a multi-million industry. You know, it's not like people are sitting at home fantasizing that shit out of nowhere. Yeah, you know this is a big project. <laughs> you know these images don't just pop up out of nowhere, and and that's the the you know 
that's something we need to consider that it's 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 a kind of game of cat and mouse and i don't know it's it's strange on the other hand it is it has become kind of democratized with people posting so many of their own videos and suddenly we are also seeing well genuine i don't know but like <laughs> you know at least like it's definitely a bad person's whatever uh fantasy representation yeah that they're they keep on feeding into the the, the web you know and, and what is better i don't know in both cases i would say it's it's a bit of um it's quite overwhelming and yeah. it's a bit of a mess because all of those images are getting mixed up interweaving um they're not representing they're creating a reality in which we cannot close our eyes like in that uh, clockwork orange but at the same time we can't really you know we, we can try to learn to navigate but can we really make sense of it yeah. i'm not sure and like also now for example maybe we have more time but we have more time to get even more you know uh <laughs> consumed by all of these images yeah so yeah yeah one of so one of the he speaks about uh uh the you know hungry children in africa images right but the fact that they are on the screen and we recognize them as a screen also makes them far away from us so maybe that's a way of because <laughs> it's very interesting he writes this so this this always happens you know when when in, in america when there's another school shooting or something like that or um then some certain movies are suddenly withdrawn because they are very similar to it but they're <laughs> but only for half a year or a year so <laughs> A few years after 9-11, all those movies that were postponed, they came out and they were very popular. And they were some, you know, there's uh, the Marvels, uh, the Marvel uh, movies. I don't know which one, but uh, they're also, they're aliens attacking New York. So they're also kind of, <laughs> so there were films made about an alien force attacking, uh, you know, the center of power. <laughs> then then it really happened and then right away again these films were made maybe as a way of of processing it or shaping the story look again this is just a part of the world and one of the industries there's also the asian very big uh, film industry yeah. and there's also stuff happening in asia so it also just depends on the perspective you know what are we you know what are we focusing on which part of the world which what kind of culture who who whose fantasies whose dreams you know mm -hmm. and i think that's shifting rapidly um i think the asian market is very big <laughs> and slowly this will affect gradually we will it will fracture this kind of very this bubble of um western um, self i don't know self-obsession yeah <laughs> you know so what are some some of your favorite movies to watch at the moment um at the moment oh well like i said earlier the violent heart 
At the moment, I don't really know. I mean, I'm, I'm not. Um, I'm not really looking. Like, if I find something that speaks to me, yeah. Um, I always recommend uh, Orlando, which is my favorite adaptation of Virginia Woolf by um, Sally Potter. I think that's one of the films everyone should see about a person in transition. Hmm. Virginia Woolf wrote that book then sally potter made the adaptation and just recently a friend of mine made kind of photography with rizzo printing um based on that topic as well Mm. so it shifted another to another medium so i'm i'm really interested in in those kind of projects and 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 seeing how um, what i also noticed was poetry when i write it it's like this creature that kind of (laughs) comes in and out through mediums you know in one moment it can be a poem the other moment it can be a a a stroke of paint or something yeah i find that interesting like that creature that moves and and animates things um rather than just one medium yeah because uh, it's kind of something wants to reveal itself i think most directors at least i know woody allen spoke about this that when you make a film it's maybe very different from writing or something in that you you have very little control over how the final product will look yeah that something needs to reveal itself and it will reveal itself um, using certain situations and Hmm. what's at hand you know and of course there's so many minds working on something specific together yeah but maybe they're also being used by that that concept that creature that just like wants to leave a mark yeah going back to the cave of herzog what fascinates me is that these prehistoric people created something that we now watch on film i don't know if anyone can even enter those caves anymore because they're quite fragile yeah but is it like the film will last for a while the caves will outlast the film i'm sure i mean it's quite possible Uh You know, isn't that weird? <laughs> it's very like, weird. Yeah. Like we're here, you know, creating these huge industries, technologies, but it would be insane if in another 35,000 years somebody finds those caves, mm-hmm. they're not going to find any of this film. Film doesn't last that long or whatever. Now it's all digital as well. Like where? Where are they going to look for it? In some cloud? Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's, I mean, that's maybe the most fundamental question I can ask you. What is film at its most basic level? It's not, it's not like you, it's not the, the like actual film as in photographs or negatives being sped in front of a light, like in Plato's cave. It's not just the digital uh, part of it. It's not the material. Well, well, look. Uh, there's so many look today i would say it's a need to relate through time or it's a need to share through time yeah mm-hmm. within a time but also through time but maybe if you ask me in a few weeks i'll have a different answer <laughs> <you know? laughs> the thing is that need impresses itself sometimes much more it's more durable than other times yeah and i would say those cave people did a really good job <laughs> in, 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 in impressing that need and impressing it 
pushing it into you know the matter of reality yeah and it's incredible that we so it's it makes something accessible like you said in you know a few decades ago those caves would be closed and preserved and uh, at most maybe you would see some photographs of it but now you have maybe one of the best documentary makers in the world making a film and with the you know how he does it with the with the music he plays with it and everything he make really makes you experience at least his version of those uh, cave paintings and it creates a bridge with uh us <laughs> uh you know tens of thousands of years ago exactly because he's also very good in expressing that need to relate in time or through time or yeah. within a time but again he's doing that for us now but that cave i mean in 20,000 years maybe somebody else will do it again yeah but, i mean the cave will stay hopefully <laughs> you know yeah, i yeah. mean again it was created because nature helped and the entrances were blocked because of some shifts in the uh, plates. But so, you know, it would be great if, again, somehow we helped it now ourselves. We helped and keep it, preserve it. And this is a, an amazing story mm -hmm. of human culture. Sculpting in time, right? It's Tarkovsky's uh, book. Yeah. And then we, and then every few thousand years, we keep on relating to it. <laughs> <laughs> Masha, thank you very much for speaking with me about film and Plato's cave. Well, thank you. And it's really great to remember all these things that we um that we realized back then all those years ago. Thank you for listening. Masha is always doing lots of projects, and you can find some of her poetry, her readings, her music, and her radio shows on her SoundCloud. And through the other links I will put in the description. Visit livefromplatoscave.com for ways to support the show and how to contact me if you have any questions. I also made a list of all the films we mentioned. Your homework is to watch them between now and the next episode. I'm just kidding, of course. One more thing. So far we have looked at Plato's Cave through different lenses, like the lens of film today. But what if we looked at the cave as, well, a cave? Next month we will have a guided tour of Plato's Cave by a geologist. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you again next month.